Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. You can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it is my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Willie Mays, Simone Biles, Jim Brown, Tiger Woods, Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Roger Federer, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan. In their respective fields of baseball, gymnastics, football, golf, sprinting, swimming, tennis, hockey, and basketball, these people are considered by many to be the greatest of all time. They are fun to watch. They are or were supremely talented at their craft. They are interesting to learn about. Their stories are impressive. Their abilities are clear to anyone familiar with what they are doing. But their greatness is subjective, of course. Undoubtedly, some will argue that they thought someone else was greater. And while I do appreciate what they've been able to accomplish, it must be said that even if you do agree that these people are the greatest of all time in their respective fields, they are still just the greatest of all time to play a game. Now, we could try to determine the greatest in more noble arenas, perhaps. We could try to figure out who is the greatest mayor of all time, the greatest president of all time, the greatest teacher of all time, the greatest entrepreneur of all time. We could even attempt to finally determine who actually is the world's greatest boss. But the fact remains, just like our list of athletes, these would all be men or women who were the greatest something of all time. This morning, as we continue in our new message series looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're going to dig into a passage where Paul describes the greatest of all time, period. There is none like this man. Who he was, what he did, his whole story, it's incomparable. In fact, many of you are probably holding Bibles right now that have provided a subheading for this passage which says something like the incomparable Christ. Because he is. Last week, as we started this new message series, I told you that Paul, along with Timothy, sent this letter to those who are in Christ and at Colossi. And I told you that while it's subtle, there seems to be a very serious issue being introduced here. Throughout Paul's letter, we find more than just simple encouragement, more than just obvious reminders, more than just expected attaboys. Paul seems to be combating vain philosophies, doctrines of men, and attempts to draw away disciples. Based on the Colossian letter's subject matter, language, and tone, it seems clear to most Bible students that at least some form of Gnostic teaching was trying to take root in the Christian community at Colossae. Gnostic ideas like Jesus being just a man and not the same as Christ. Like Christ being significantly inferior to God. Like creation being disconnected from God. Like the God of the Bible being wicked. Like matter being purely evil and totally separate from the spiritual. And like there being knowledge that only great Gnostic teachers specially received, exclusively possess, and must pass to you for you to ever truly be saved. In other words, the Gnostics taught that only they had complete knowledge and that Christians would need to 
to learn from them what only they knew if they ever wanted to be saved. To them, neither Christianity nor Christ were enough. In our passage today, Paul gives the Colossian Christians plenty of ammunition against many of the false Gnostic beliefs about the Christ. The Christ who was a man, who had all the fullness of God in him, who of necessity lived and died in the flesh, and who shed his blood to redeem his own creation. He was, with no qualifiers necessary, the greatest of all time. There are at least four distinct ways that Jesus is the greatest, according to Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And of course, I'd like to point out each of those ways this morning as we unpack the all-time greatness of Jesus, proving that there is none greater and that he, he cannot be topped. Therefore, why waver? Why worry? And why wonder at any time if he'll be enough? So let's jump in. First of all, Jesus is the greatest of all time because he is the greatest God. He is the greatest God. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Gnostics taught that Christ was essentially an angel that descended from another angel that had descended from another angel, that he had come on the scene as a result of generations and generations and generations of angelic reproductions. They taught that he was just some mini-god who was not unique in any significant way and that he was significantly inferior to God. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to record the truth, which is that Jesus is the image of God. He shares with us exactly what God is like. We see God's nature through Jesus. No one could do this unless they were God. You cannot be an exact representation of God and his nature without being God. The first part of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, And he is, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of his glory, talking about God. He, Christ, is the radiance of his, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature, the Bible says. Jesus himself said it clearly in John 14, verse 9. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then the second half of Colossians 1.15 said that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, this isn't saying that he's the first one who was born of creation. It's the the term or the title of firstborn. And the context tells us that we're using the term firstborn as a, a title of rank and honor. We're referring to the benefits afforded to the firstborn. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Moses is told by God to tell Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my, my son, my firstborn. Israel was chosen. Israel was God's special nation. Israel was held in higher regard. Israel was honored by God. Israel had a promised inheritance. This is another example in scripture of the term firstborn describing position or rank or honor. Like a firstborn would, Jesus has the special honor, the higher rank. He is over and above all of creation. And Paul continues in our text in verse 16 by telling us why Christ holds this authority over creation. In Colossians 1 verse 16, he writes, For by him all things were created 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he is the exact representation or image of God and his nature, and he is over and above all creation because he created it. Creation belongs to him. He made everything. Now, this would make a Gnostic's head explode. They not only believed that Jesus was inferior to God, but they also did not believe that their supreme being or their version of God created a physical earth and physical beings to inhabit it. They believed uh, creation as we know it was a mistake performed by a lesser evil God. So to say that Jesus was was God and that he was involved in creation, that was completely crazy to them. But it gets even crazier to the Gnostic thinker because this passage says he created not just the physical, not just the the visible, but even the invisible, the things we don't see, clearly referencing spiritual things. Jesus created them. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He created those spiritual ranks. But wait, there's more. He didn't just create it. He created it on purpose. It was no accident. The scripture says here that all things were created through him and for him. He wasn't some lesser God who was working on something and went, "Uh uh-oh, what did I just do? No, he's the one and the only true God who not only created, but created for himself. Creation has a purpose, a good purpose. I'd like to encourage you to think about that the next time you start feeling down. Think about that the next time you start questioning your worth. Think about that the next time you start trying to devalue yourself. You were created through him and for him. Now, that will make you say, wow. Well, then Paul writes in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things is super literal, all right? He is literally means he exists. Before is literally a reference to a time prior to another time. And all things literally means all of creation, right? Seen and unseen. We've covered that much. This literally means Jesus exists prior to all creation. And the second half of verse 17 said, in him all things hold together. Well, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. How do tiny atoms make up all matter, constantly move, but not go flying off into oblivion? How do gravity and all the other laws of nature work so consistently and predictably? And despite the curse that sin brought into this world, how are there so many interdependent parts of creation that simply continue to sustain one another? My answer is what I believe Paul's answer is. In him, that is Christ, in him all things hold together. The song is right. Our God is an awesome God, and Jesus Christ is that God. I suppose we should ask ourselves a couple of very practical questions here. What are we doing with this God? And is it appropriate considering the God that he is? Let a reading of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 control your schedule, your priorities, your parenting, your social life, your academic life, your entertainment choices, your treatment of others, your long-term goals, your short-term goals, your habits, your mission, your language, your tone, and any part of your life that I may possibly have left out. Jesus deserves it. He deserves it because Jesus is the greatest of all time, and in large part because he is the greatest God. 
But Jesus is also the greatest of all time because he is the greatest leader. He's the greatest leader. We like leaders. We look to leaders for guidance. We look to leaders uh, to help us solve problems. Even those at the very top echelons of society have within them a desire to follow a great leader. It's almost like we've been wired to worship. Unfortunately for, or, and fortunately for those who are humble enough to surrender and submit and follow the leader, there is one who is the ultimate leader, Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate leader, the greatest of all time. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Those of us who are part of the body of Christ, the church of Christ, we have access to the greatest leader of all time. He's the head. We are the body. He gives us direction. He gives us instruction. He gives us mission. He gives us solutions. He gives us purpose. The head contains the message. The body participates in sharing that message. And our head, our leader, this verse says, is the beginning. The way uh, that this verse is structured in the Greek appears to actually be telling us here uh, why he is the head of the body. We might translate this as something like, because he is the beginning. Okay, the, the, the word that Paul uses here for beginning means that Jesus is the power or he's the source. Jesus is the originator of this new creation, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says it like this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, first fruits clearly implies that there are more to come. Christ is the first of more to come. Now, now who would the more to come be? Who, who would they be? Who are the others who would also raise from death to eternal life like Jesus? Those who faithfully trust and obey him. Those who are part of his body here on earth, the church. It's no wonder this Jesus was made head of the church. But at the very end of verse 18, Paul points out something uh, very important. He says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So don't think of Jesus as being head of only the church. He is head of the church, but he's going to come to have first place in, in more than just that. He will come to have first place in everything. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says it like this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is over and above, superior, preeminent in everything. The living, the dead, on earth, under the earth, seen, unseen, physical, spiritual, you name it. And Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, the fullness of what, do you suppose? Well, Colossians 2.9 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him all the fullness of deity dwells dwells in bodily form. It is pleasing to God the Father for his son, the greatest leader of all time, to possess the fullness of Godhood within himself. Can you think of a better leader than the one who was also himself fully God? Now, ask yourself, as I ask myself, what are we doing as individuals to follow the direction of the greatest leader of all time?
What are we doing as parents and grandparents to follow the direction of the greatest leader of all time? Men of the church, what are we doing as leaders to follow the direction of the greatest leader of all time? Women of the church, what are you doing to follow the greatest leader of all time? You see, leaders are meant to be followed. Those who follow are meant to trust and obey the leader. Now, the greatest leader of all time has literally invited you, yes, you, to follow him. Are you trusting, obeying, and following him? If your answer is no, start fixing that right now. If your answer is yes, I would, I would follow up with the question, can you do better? Does he deserve for you to do better? You will inevitably say yes, and I will encourage you with, so start now. So start now. Jesus is the greatest of all time, in large part because he is the greatest God and the greatest leader. But Jesus is also the greatest of all time because he is the greatest Savior. He's the greatest Savior. After Paul writes in verse 19 that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Paul writes in verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of, the, of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Jesus is not only the God who created and holds all things together. He's not only the great leader who is head of the church and above all things. He, of course, is also our savior. The world calls a lot of people a savior of sorts. The world treats a lot of people like a kind of savior, but Jesus actually is our savior. He doesn't just fix our current lives and give us peace for now. He has solved our sin and death problem. He has made forgiveness of sin and eternal life possible. He has made those things available to whoever will come to him. And Paul points out here that he's the savior of all creation, not just you and me, not just human beings. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how all of creation groans, as we do, for the day when all will be set free from slavery of corruption. When all will be set free from the slavery of corruption. It was the Father's good pleasure for Christ to fulfill God's eternal purpose by restoring his entire creation to harmony and submission to his authority. Now, I don't know about you, but thinking about it like this actually increases my desire to willingly submit to his authority and to live in harmony with his will. Because there are going to be some people and some beings like the devil who will not be submitting voluntarily, but will instead be brought to their knees in the end and will be eternally punished because they rejected and they rebelled against the Savior. When I think about how it pleases God the Father to have Jesus reconcile all things to himself, when I consider that Jesus shed his blood on a cross so that God's eternal purpose is fulfilled, it makes me want to wake up each day, encounter each person, perform each task, speak each word, and do everything I do in an intentional, voluntary effort to submit to his will, to kneel before him, to worship him. Jesus is the greatest of all time, in large part because he is the greatest God, the greatest leader, and the greatest Savior. But Jesus is also the greatest of all time because he is the greatest story. The greatest story. Jake, what do you mean he is the greatest story? Well, it is his story. It is the gospel of Christ. It is the good news of what he did and its effect. Look at what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And although you were formerly alienated 
and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the greatest story. This is the absolute greatest story. In verse 21, Paul says the Colossians were once alienated. In the mind of God, they were separated from him. That separation was a result of what Paul refers to in verse 21 as being hostile in mind. This is the the state of mind of the sinner. And of course, a hostile mind engages in evil deeds. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. In other words, it's what is on the inside that comes out. A hostile mind engages in evil deeds. And the result is alienation or separation from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then Paul uses a a giant three-letter word. He says, yet. Yet, verse 22 says, yet, He has reconciled us. He has reconciled you, Colossians. He has reconciled us, Christians, today. Look, there's a huge difference between where the Colossians are now, as Paul's writing this, versus where they were before they had met Christ, before they had learned the hope of the gospel. And Paul is pointing that out. He is uh, drawing to their minds the huge contrast between where they were before they had the hope of the gospel versus where they are now in Christ with the hope, holding on to the hope of the gospel. Now, Paul is also pointing out how that reconciliation happened. Paul writes in verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Romans 8, 3 points out that God, through sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it in the flesh by sending his son in the flesh, right? In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. What the scriptures teach flies in the face of what the Gnostics were peddling. Jesus Christ absolutely died in the flesh to redeem us while we were in the flesh. And that was always God's plan. And Paul lays out the purpose of that death at the end of verse 22, where he said, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ's death was so that We could be presented in three ways, according to what Paul says here. Holy refers to something that is set aside and dedicated to God or or something that is made free from sin. As Christians, we are both. We are both set aside, dedicated to God, and we are made free from sin. Blameless means that we are like a sacrificial animal without flaw or blemish and therefore uh, worthy to be offered to God. Romans 12 talks about our bodies being living sacrifices to God. And then beyond reproach means free from accusation. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later on in Romans 8, verse 33, it asks a question. The scripture says there, who will bring a charge against God's elect? As Christians, as those who are in him, we cannot be successfully accused before God because Christ died for us, rose again, and intercedes on our behalf. But it's still up to you. Jesus has done his part. Jesus is holding up his end of the deal, so to speak. And Paul writes in verse 23, he says, If, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul is telling the Colossians that they need to continue building on the firm foundation. That's the idea of being firmly established. And that firm foundation will result in a building that is stable. That's the idea of being steadfast. And when Paul tells them not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel that they heard, that is Paul acknowledging the fact that there is a group on the outside trying to get in. There is a way of thinking that is trying to infiltrate their church. There is a force that could topple what they are building for Christ. I mentioned last week that I believe the Colossian Christians faced a situation that is very similar to our own. Now, I want you to really think about this. When it comes to your faith and trust and obedience, what is on the outside trying to get in? What way of thinking is trying to infiltrate your faith? What is the force that could topple what you need to be building for Christ? We would do well to ask those questions for our own church on behalf of the whole church. What, what's trying to get in? What's trying to infiltrate? What's trying to topple us? The remedy is continuing in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Like the Colossians, we are surrounded by a plethora of competing worldviews, cults, denominations, critics, atheists, postmodernists, and a thousand others. We just need the reminder that Paul gave the Colossians. We need to see Jesus as the greatest of all time, the greatest God, the greatest leader, the greatest Savior, and the greatest story. There is none greater, and he cannot be taught. Therefore, why waver, why worry, and why wonder at any time if he is enough? Give and live your life for the greatest of all time. As we finish things up here today, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts, that you'd go to live with him forever? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, Scripture says that there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Now, who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed here, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, before we can obey the gospel, we must believe the gospel. We must believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did for us. 
We need to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. If the Bible says that Jesus is the Christ, he's the one who would come to save us from our sins. He is the son of the living God. He himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And he is God the Son who came to earth in human form. We must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism, where we are immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Acts chapter 22, verse 16, make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, baptism saves us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. Let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure no doubts that you would go to live with him forever. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions that you have. We would sincerely appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, just keep listening and we'll tell you in just a moment how you can get in touch with us. just listen to the current sermon from Liberty Christian Church, the very same sermon that you would have heard today in person at Liberty. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., and I'd love to encourage you to come to both services. Our address is 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to call us, just call 812-273-1518. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that directly from our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Remember, we love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.